and hurry to the stillness of God's peace from our vain ambitions worry come to Christ and find release come away from noise and clamor life's demands and frenzied pace come to join the people gathered here to seek and find God's grace in the pastures of God's goodness we Marsha, and I'm part of this great worship team. I love it, I have to say. Pretty sweet team to work with. We love you guys, and the production team that's always in the back. How about a round of applause for the production team? Seriously. You guys are amazing. There's a lot that goes into that every week, and, uh, and they're the guys that nobody looks at until something goes wrong, right? <laughs> we do appreciate you. Um, 
So also uh, with ushers and with communion team and with baptism, with food hospitality on Sunday morning and, uh, and the prayer team, if you have questions about any of that, I would love to answer them for you. So please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Um, we have got here at, at Fellowship Bentonville, we believe that we grow and we belong together as a body of Christ. We are here in this place, but we know the church is all of you. It's us. It's not a place. And, uh, and we believe that for all of life. And for those of you like me who are ticking the odometer over into, uh, into a few more digits, uh, we have a great opportunity that's actually come back to Bentonville after, um, after COVID. And I'd like to bring Dick Nervig up to share just a little bit about the vision for legacy here at Fellowship Bentonville. Thank you, Marcia. Legacy. Uh, there is a number of us in uh, my season of life. Uh, that we have been praying for years about a ministry to and from mature adults. And there's, God's hand is at work. There is a movement where God is raising up uh, mature adults in all of our congregations across Northwest Arkansas, Fellowship Northwest Arkansas, and uh, they're on fire for the Lord. And we want you to come and join us at Legacy. Um, this movement, I've heard some people refer to it as a silver tsunami. And that really uh, capitalizes it. So our legacy is very simple. Uh, we want to equip uh, mature adults and producing and releasing leaders. And at our legacy gatherings, I see it's up on the screen here. The format is really simple. That uh, We're going to meet the first... Uh, Wednesday of uh, every month, uh, starting uh, August 3rd, and uh, from 10 to uh, 11.30, over in that building, there'll be people out here to greet you, but we're going to dig into the Word and find out what is our biblical role as produce and release leaders, and what does it mean to live and finish and well and honor God in this season of life. It's going to be amazing, so we look forward to seeing you there. My wife Connie and I will be out in the foyer at the information booth to answer any questions and get you reg registered. Remember, silver tsunami, catch the wave. <laughs> Somehow, I think we need some Hawaii Five O music here. Um, no, thank you, Dick. And would you guys thank Dick and Connie Nervig, uh, please? Uh, Dick is one of our elders. Dick and Connie are on our prayer team. They are small group leaders. They're shepherds. They are welcomers. They're, uh, they really have vested at this point in their lives deeply into the community and into this church. So I invite you, brothers and sisters, to come into this moment. Don't know what's gone on in your life this week, um, but I do know that Jesus invites you to lay it down here. He invites us into his peace, which he tells us in his word is not like the world's peace. It is a special, Holy Spirit-driven, God-given peace. And we invite you to lay that down. We invite you to come into this space for the worship of one, and that is God. And so as we prepare our hearts and minds, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we know that you are the creator of our vast universe. And, Father, we've gotten a glimpse of 600 billion light years away. And that 
you. And those images of deep space and maybe the beginnings of our universe, Lord, but we know it all began with you. But that same God that creates this incredible universe that's so much bigger than we are, you care about us, each individual. Our names are written on your book. You know the number of hairs on our heads. Father, you know when we were made and woven in the womb, you were there. And Father, we want to engage with a life that is so intimate with you, a with God experience here this morning. Would you just help us take that breath, that holy breath, Lord, so that we can drink you in and lay down at your feet, Lord, those things that you would not have us carry. Father, as we come here, we, we offer ourselves, Lord, for your service. We bring our offerings of our material goods, Lord, those things that you have blessed in our lives, and we offer them up to you. Father, they are yours. Help us to live lives of open hands and open hearts. We give this time to you, Lord, for you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.
alone our hope is found let's sing this together my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest faith but holy trust in
that you are strong. You are strong on our behalf. Your love is strong. You are a firm foundation on which we can stand in peace, with joy. We can stand strong and sweet in your presence. God, I thank you for that reality. Jesus, thank you for your work, for your life, your death, your resurrection in which we can join you. God, we're just grateful to be in your presence this morning. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Is it too much to pray twice in a row? Because we're going to do it. Uh, so I, I found this prayer that I thought was really great um, by an old guy. Thomas Aquinas, and uh, it's a great prayer for us as we head into teaching uh, as, lear as learners and for our teacher, Doug, this morning. Um, so would you pray it with me? Let's pray it together. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, I don't hear you, enlighten by your Holy Spirit those who teach and those who learn that rejoicing in the knowledge of your truth 
they may worship you and serve you from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We'll be in John chapter 18. If you want to be finding your place there. John chapter 18, as we continue through our study through John and looking at some of the encounters that he has had uh, that are recorded there. Good morning, my name is Doug, and it is my pleasure and privilege to uh, serve with all the staff and with you guys here in uh, Fellowship Bentonville. And um, <clears throat> I have a, a variety of responsibilities that, that are given to me. I was talking with Dick Nervig uh, out in the foyer earlier, and he said, uh, you know, the, the most important part of any job description is other duties as assigned. Uh, I told him, I said, yeah, and they write my job description in pencil. They just, you know. But anyway, I, it is a joy and a pleasure to be able to serve with you guys. John chapter 18, we're going to start reading in verse 28. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? <clears throat> then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Pontius Pilate was a mid-level Roman government official. He wasn't really, really powerful, but he also wasn't bottom of the rung. He was just this mid-level uh, Roman official, government official. The, uh, <clears throat> the title that he was given was prefect, uh, which doesn't really mean much to us, which is why in most Bible English translations he's referred to as the governor. But his responsibility was over the area of Judea. He was probably from a middle-class family, uh, from southern Italy, they think. And like many officials of his day, the, the, he gained office through the influence of friends. 
We don't know a lot about him, but the few stories we have about him, both in scriptures and in other historical records, tell us something about his character. For starters, Pontius Pilate hated Jews. He despised them. He despised their, their traditions. He despised their religion. He, didn't, he hated Jews just in general. In fact, he was so disrespectful and, and treated them with such disregard and their traditions and things that were important to them. Uh, he violated so many things with them that he ended up getting in trouble multiple times, and that was eventually what cost him his job. He was mostly concerned with his own career and his own advancement. And so, therefore, keeping the right people happy in order to guarantee his position. He is described as a hateful man with a bad temper who could be easily manipulated through his ambition and personal greed. He would have been pretty well educated, but there's no indication that he was uh, particularly a deep thinker or very scholarly. Uh, and the reason I make this point is because in this encounter with Jesus, Pilate asks a question that holds a place among the largest questions ever posed in humanity. What is truth? So again, out of this mid-level Roman official who was overseeing a relatively insignificant part of the Roman Empire, we have a question that has... It's a question that, that great thinkers from all cultures in every era have wrestled with for millennia. What is truth? Now, Pilate is not asking this question in an effort to, tr to find the facts that he needs to understand to deal with the case that is before him. That's not how he asks the question. If, he, if that were the, the thing, he would have said, well, what are the true facts about this? What's true about this? And he would have dug a little deeper. But when he asks the question, what is truth? He's actually elevating this idea, this concept that there is a truth, the truth. And that's the question that he's asking. And that is the question that, that, that mankind has wrestled with and great thinkers and theologians and philosophers have wrestled with for, for a long, long time. And so as we move into kind of Jesus' answer and response in this whole encounter. I want to start by exploring some of these ideas about truth. Now, let me just say very quickly, there's no way in a few minutes that we're going to resolve questions that have been wrestled with for thousands of years. I'm not that smart, and we don't have that much time. So we're not going to do that. But what I do want to do is kind of press into what this question is and how it how it relates to what Jesus said when he said, because this is Pilate's response was for what Jesus said, I came to, to reveal or to bear witness to truth. So we ask three questions about truth. First of all, is truth personal and subjective or universal and, and objective? <clears throat> it is common today for people to speak about my truth and your truth. I have my truth, you have your truth, and sometimes those truths intertwine and sometimes they disagree, and, and so we talk about truth as if it is personal and subjective. So it implies that truth could be unique to an individual. 
Well, if that is so, then the implication of that is that whatever's true for me might not be true for you. And whatever truths that you embrace and appeal to for governing your life, I can truly and freely disregard for my own life if truth is personal and subjective. Now, it is true that there are some things that are true about one individual that are not true about another individual. For example, I grew up in Arkansas, and if you grew up in Arkansas, but you grew up in a different place, if we were to talk about what is it like to grow up in Arkansas, our truths that we would answer that might not match. So it is possible, it is true that there are things about me that aren't true about you. But even the statement, my truth may be different from your truth, appeals to the idea of a higher and universal truth, and that is some truths can be different. Let me say, put it this way. If someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth, then my question is, are you absolutely sure? Because you just stated an absolute truth. And so my point is, even though we may see and find places where we would say truth would be personal and subjective, there is a sense in which the truth is something that is universal and objective, and it is true for all people. And we appeal to that all the time. In fact, it is practically impossible to function in life in this world with the belief that every truth is subjective. The second question I want to ask about truth then, is truth fluid or is it fixed? Or in other words, can something be true at one time and then no longer be true? There is one view of truth that says truth is determined by the beliefs of people or cultures. In other words, something is true because a particular people believe it to be true or a particular culture embraces it to be true. And this view of truth is often used to explain why certain practices, such as slavery, might have been acceptable in the past, but now they're wrong. Or perhaps views of marriage and sexuality that were accepted as true before are no longer true because people have changed. But I want you to imagine for a moment what the world would be like if we all embraced the view that nothing is always absolutely right and true. Truth changes. Truth moves. Depending on whether or not you believe in that truth. How would you establish a society that would function if there's no guidelines or directions about how people ought to treat each other? See, again, we don't, we don't really believe that all truth is fluid. When I was in high school, I really enjoyed my science classes, and my physics teacher was talking about just the laws of physics, and he said, you know, there's something interesting about the law of gravity. It works for people who don't believe in it. No matter how much you think you can fly, the law of gravity will always take over and win. There are some truths that remain fixed. Whether we want to embrace them or believe in them or not, we know there are some truths that stay 
the same. So the third question about truth. Is truth knowable or unknowable? So as these uh, great philosophers and thinkers have plumbed the depths of this question, what is truth? They've recognized our inability as limited and finite creatures to grasp this idea, to fully grasp this idea of truth. And so while they would say we can grasp portions of truth, they would say we could never really know what is true. And I wonder if this might be a little bit of what was going through Pilate's mind when he asked that question, what is truth? He was standing in the middle of a scenario that was full of deceit. He knew the Jews were making stuff up. He knew that what was going on was nothing more than manipulation. And he's going, is it even possible to know what's true around here anymore? So my response to someone who would say, well, truth is not even knowable because we're too limited and we're too finite, I would say you're partially right. As finite, limited human beings, the ability to grasp infinite truth is way beyond us unless, unless an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing being decided that he wanted to make truth knowable to us. Which brings us back to what Jesus said, for this purpose I came, for this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. And so as we've explored, kind of dug into this, the thing I want us to walk away with is that there are some truths that are objective and universal, that are fixed forever, and we can know them because Jesus makes them known to us. So now I want us to explore what truth does Jesus make known to us? What truth does Jesus show us? If he came to show us truth, number one, he came to show us the truth about God. If we examine human history, we find that humans have always had some beliefs about God and what he might be like. In fact, this idea uh, of this, this broad general idea of atheism is actually a fairly modern invention. If you study the history of humankind, we've, we find all kinds of history that people have believed in some form of God, and they had their ideas about what he was like, and this is just broad and varied ideas. And so there have been great differences in these ideas. And even after God revealed himself in his word and to his people, they still didn't get it quite right. So that Jesus came to this group of people that, to whom God had given his word and revealed himself to show what he was like. And he said, you guys have missed it. The God that you have in your mind is not who God really is. And he came to show them who God is. The writer of Hebrews says in the very first few verses of his book, so finally, God spoke to us through his son. He came, Jesus came to show us what God is like. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we're told no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
Jesus says himself in John chapter 14, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. So that Paul then says in Colossians, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, which is why we're doing that. Why we're going to the Gospel of John is because we want to look at Jesus to learn what is God like. So I want to do a quick exercise with you. If you've got something you can write with, you can, you can write these things down. If not, you can do this uh, just in your mind. I want you to think of five words that describe what Jesus is like. In your mind, real quickly, or write it down, five words that describe what Jesus is like. Here's a few I wrote down. Loving, kind, gracious, strong, powerful, righteous, friend, redeemer, savior. You add yours to the list. And my point is this. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of the triune God whom we love and worship and serve. There is no difference. If, this, if Jesus is like this, then God is like this. What is God like? He's exactly like Jesus. So the man that we read about in the Gospels is a perfect representation to us of the character and the nature and the personality of God. So if you ever find yourself with a different view of God than you have of Jesus, and I've heard people who say that, well, I really love Jesus, not real fond of God. If you ever find yourself having a conflict between how you think of God and how you think of Jesus, then I want you to go back to these verses and remember Jesus is the image, the perfect representation of the invisible God. So what is God like? He's like Jesus. And Jesus came to show us the truth about what God is like. Secondly, Jesus came to show us the truth about ourselves. Depending on the day and the circumstances, if you were to ask me, what are people like? You may get an answer somewhere from good and kind to horrible and evil. Now, I confess in my own brokenness, in my own fallen personality, it's easy for me to live in that realm of seeing people as annoying, frustrating, and somewhat stupid. Which, by the way, is why I stay off of social media, because that just reinforces this way of thinking by proving me right. But it's not important what I think about people. It's important what God says about people. So let me ask you a question before we get into what God says about people. If you and God disagree about something, who do you think is right? All right. So as we look at what God says about you, about the person next to you, about every person on the face of this earth, let us remember it's what he says that matters. 
What if I were to tell you that you, right where you are right now, exactly the way you are, are absolutely, fully, completely, and unconditionally loved by God? Some of you hear that and you just smile and go, man, that is just incredible truth. I'm so thankful for that. And some of you go, I don't know if I believe that. What if I told you the person sitting next to you, the same thing is true of them? And what if I told you the worst person you can think of on the face of this earth, the same thing is true of them? Let's see what God says. What does Jesus reveal to us about ourselves? John chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus, out of his mouth, says, For God so loved who? Go ahead and say it. The world. That's everybody. That's an all-inclusive word. That is not a, a selective word. He didn't say, For God so loved this group of people, or people who are like this, or people who aren't like this. He didn't say that. Jesus himself said that God loved the entire world, every person in this world. Now, there's something incredibly interesting when you talk about a being that is like God. Anything he does, he does fully. God doesn't halfway do anything. So if he's going to love it all, he's going to love completely. And if he's going to love you at all, he's going to love you completely. And what does he say? God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then this same writer of the gospel, he wrote in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we loved God. So what John's saying is, hey, it's no big surprise that you love God. If you met God, you'd love him but that he loved us. And look at what he goes, says next. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfying payment for our sins. You know what he's saying there? That God loved us not when we finally figured out a way to become lovable or worked on becoming lovely. God loved us when we were in sin and needed a Savior. God loves us completely, absolutely, fully, and unconditionally. There are many more verses I could point you to. It's the whole book. And these all tell us that God doesn't just love those who prove themselves worthy of love. God loves every one of us. And so you may be sitting there going, you have no idea how unlovely I feel or how unlovable I am. And I'm saying it doesn't matter. God loves you. Jesus came to tell you that. He came to show you that truth. It doesn't change. It's universal. And he came to let you know that that is true. Augustine of Hippo, who was a great early Christian pastor and theologian, he wrote, and this is a translation, he wrote it in Latin, so it's not exactly what he said, but he wrote something like this. God loves each one of us as if there is only one of us to love. That's a truth. 
that Jesus came to show us. So no matter how you feel about yourself or the person next to you or anybody else in this world, God loves you and them. In fact, I'm convinced that Jesus came in to show us that we are loved more than we can comprehend. And then he shows us something else about ourselves. In John chapter 1, it says, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus himself says, and this is the judgment. The light, which we just said was Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And then the writer of Romans in chapter 3 says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came to show us that we are loved beyond what we can comprehend, but he also came to show us that we are sinful. Completely. Holy. There is a, through his perfect righteousness, uh, Jesus reveals to us a truth that um, in, in theology is called total depravity. And some people hear that word and go, well, I'm not totally depraved. I know people who are much worse than I am. And that's not what total depravity is talking about. The idea of total depravity is not that every person is as wicked as they could possibly be, because we know that's just not true. There are some people who truly behave and and respond far more wickedly than others. What total depravity means is there's no part of any one of us that has not been infected by and, and affected by sin. So no matter how good we try to be, no matter how hard we work to become better and to live out goodness, sin is always present, even in that goodness. Every one of us desperately needs to be rescued and redeemed from the prison of our own brokenness and sin. And Jesus came to show us that we are far more broken by sin than what we believe. I was talking with someone this um, yesterday. We were talking about some really hard things that, that have happened in life. I said, you know, what amazes me is that if you take out the, the people who are truly psychopaths and, and, and have other uh, significant issues, nobody thinks of themselves as being evil. And most of us don't even think of ourselves as being that bad. And so Jesus came to say, oh no, you're far worse than you think you are. Your problem goes deeper than you can imagine. You are in desperate need of someone to come and rescue you because you can't fix yourself. You can't. No matter how hard you work, you're not going to get rid of your sin problem. Which brings us to the third truth that Jesus came to show us. He came to show us the truth about life. 
In his response to Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, remember, um, I think I skipped it, but the definition of truth is that which corresponds to reality. So what if the ultimate reality is not this present life the way it is now? What if there's an ultimate reality that is more than this? What if what we're experiencing in, in this life is just a shadow, a hint of the real life to come? That would mean that truly living is more than garnering all of the experiences and possessions I can get out of the short time that I'm on this earth. That truly living is something bigger and something higher and something greater than this life in this present world. And that I live this life in this present world with a view towards and an understanding that there is something much greater and something much more. My kingdom, he says, is not of this world. So that in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus says that he came that we might have life and have overflowing and abundance in that life. So how can we have this life? We just... You know, we just talked about how Jesus revealed to us that we are incredibly broken by sin. How can we have this life? In John chapter 17, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. In 1 John 5, this is the testimony. Which, by the way, that word testimony is the same, same word Jesus said when he said, I came to bear witness. This is the witness that Jesus came to bear, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. How do we have the life? We have that life because Jesus came to make it possible for us. Jesus didn't come just to give you your truth and to give me my truth. He came to show us the truth about God, about ourselves, and about what life really is. And knowing truth is more than having knowledge of information and facts and data. Knowing the truth requires having a relationship with Jesus Christ who tells us in John chapter 14, I am the truth. So our worship team is going to come and lead us in some songs. And the first song they're going to lead us in is, a song, is an old song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. There's something about focusing on Jesus that brings incredible clarity to this world, to this life, to ourselves. And because of that, we've changed the words of the song slightly. Instead of singing, the things of earth will go strangely dim, we're going to sing that they'll grow strangely clear. So as we sing this song and, and, and a couple after it, I want you to just kind of be thinking about as, how's God revealing to you the truth? And how do you need to respond to the truth? that he's revealing? Do you need to rethink your view 
of who God is and what he's like. Maybe you're the one that needed to hear this morning that you are more loved than you can comprehend. And you just need to let yourself accept that truth and be embraced by the love of God. Maybe you needed to hear that you are more sinful than you believe and you need to stop trying to fix yourself and come to the Savior who came to fix it for you. Maybe you need to rethink just what life really is and what it's all about and how you're living it. Would you just think on these things as we turn our eyes upon Jesus?
are more. You are more. You are more than my words will ever say. You are Lord. You are Lord. All creation will proclaim. You are here. You are here. In Your presence, I Open up 
we pray that you have found a place to lay your burdens down, to bring you peace, to bring you deeper into the word, in the truth of scripture, and the truth of who Jesus is. We have our prayer team over here. We've got Tim and Donna who would love to pray with you. We have lots of prayer teams all over the community that pray for you, and we invite on Sundays for you to be prayed with with our prayer team. Uh, if you're new, we would say welcome. We would love to get to know you. There is a great team at the community desk in the foyer that would love to meet you and answer any questions. And Dick Nervig will also be in the foyer to uh, answer any questions you might have about legacy ministry. Folks, we are here at this time in this moment purposely by God's direction. Would your hearts be filled with his love and his truth as we go out into our community today. Would you be filled with the Spirit? Would you be blessed? And would the Lord keep you and give you his peace? Be sure and say hello to your neighbor as you go out today. And fellowship, we will see you next Sunday. Have a great week.